Welcome to Bridges 2030 Visions with me, James Taylor. In this series, we ask experts and thought leaders from around the globe, how do we build a more sustainable and inclusive world in this decade and beyond? This week, we're going to talk about the thorny problem of how to get more funding to diverse businesses with the help of Kim Folsom, who's the founder and CEO of Founders First. The average capital that's provided to a diverse founder is like $25,000 at best. And, you know, compare that to their white counterparts, it's one fifth of what's provided. You know, you can have really great ideas, but if you don't have the resources to do that, you're not able to take advantage of it. This is a really big growth opportunity, being able to provide a way for these companies to grow. That has a substantial impact in growing our economies. Now, in the US in recent years, venture capital investment has been hitting record levels. But according to Crunchbase data, only a fraction of this capital went to black, Latinx and female entrepreneurs. So low single digit percentages. And according to Morgan Stanley, if diverse founders just got their first share of the capital available, the wealth generated would boost the US economy by over $4 trillion. Now, Kim's a successful entrepreneur in her own right. She's raised over $140 million across six different businesses. And with Founders First, which is based in San Diego, she's trying to use revenue-based financing to help more than a 1,000 diverse founders get access to the capital, the know-how, and the networks they need to build sustainable businesses. Kim, welcome. Can we start by talking a bit about your own journey and how you came to start Founders First? I come from a pedigree of generations of engineers. So I was going to do what my um, classmates did that I went to undergraduate school with. I was going to venture out and launch a innovative business. But it was very difficult because if you can think back in the mid 90s, there was not any representation of a woman of color launching a technology-based business, a software business. So it took me eight years to figure out how I could launch my first business. But it, you know, it ended up being the same way that I got into engineering. I did what the guys that I went to school with did. Um, I went to graduate school and learned, watched two guys in my first class launch a business, get funded. And uh, the next class, I launched a business, but recognized I was going to have to figure out a different way to get funding. Um, I was going to have to prove that I could run a business that would result would deliver the same results that people desire to a cash flowing, profitable business, and that with that, that would give people comfort that they could, uh, if all money's green that they would fund somebody who didn't fit their model of an entrepreneur. But I started it around the same time as two other guys that had a different outcome. I started my business uh, about within a year of Google and uh, Amazon. And you know the rest of their story. But I eventually ended up uh, selling that company and, and thought that at this point that I demonstrated that I successfully launched and grew a venture-backed company and sold it successfully to another uh, company that I would be accepted into the technology industry to run somebody else's company and learn that wasn't happening. And so I went on and I launched five other companies, four of them venture-backed, 
And as I saw that doing this over that many times, that still, even though the internet evolved, this particular issue for diverse founders was the same. By the time I uh, sold my sixth company, it was like, you know what, I have a unique experience that I can use to help solve this problem. I didn't come to this idea alone. It also was the fact that I ended up having the same similar group of investors that would take risk with me uh, and said, you know what, you should consider being on the other side of the table, just like so many tech entrepreneurs, you know, after some point in time, they did go from being a tech founder to being a uh, investor in companies. So we've talked about some of the barriers that you overcame. What are some of the other barriers facing diverse founders and how significant is the capital gap this creates? Oh, it's significant. It's significant. I have come to learn that, you know, in a majority communities, you know, where there's generally white male entrepreneurs, their access to a network of, of professionals to see how to, you know, get friends and family money and how to grow business. It's like one in 10 or one or tw- 25 that they can get access to somebody who will, you know, either, um, Tell them how they fund a business, tell them how to grow a business and, and just putting them, you know, getting them access. There are, you know, established networks to guide them on how to do that. For people of color and women led businesses, those same networks don't exist. They don't have the friends and family who can write the six figure checks or, you know, even five, five or six figure checks to help them get started. The predominant traditional way of funding is asset back. So you have to have some financial resources to have those basic personal assets, a home, car, all of those things, savings and all of those things. And that has not even been available in communities of color. So the uh, prevalence of, of, of credit products and methodologies that take into consideration, you know, people's physical assets or the personal financial health of their business, or that bars them from taking advantage of those key credit products that are necessary to start their business. Most diverse founder-led businesses, we start them with our own resources, our savings account, our 401k. So it's recognizing that there are those challenges which make it really difficult. The vast majority of um, businesses led by Black and Brown founders are um, self-employed solopreneurs um, because of this lack of capital. The average capital that's provided to a diverse founder is like $25,000 at best. And, you know, compare that to their white counterparts, it's one fifth of what's provided. At an aggregate level, especially uh, growth capital, pre-pandemic, it was uh, 1%. With the recent initiatives in the last few years from the social reckoning and the death of, of George Floyd, it's grown to 2%, which, you know, you could say it's doubled, but it's atrocious. It's, it's atrocious. So I launched Founders First in 2015 with the goal of providing, you know, know-how, resources, advocacy, uh, you know, and how to access capital and how to build sustainable businesses, but actually being a direct capital provider, such that I could help grow these businesses. 
You're listening to Bridges 2030 Visions, a series about how we accelerate progress towards a more sustainable and inclusive world over the next decade. So Founders First uses this uh, revenue-based financing model. What are the advantages of that for diverse founders? When you take traditional equity, you have a different um, expectation model that goes along with it. My, my friends and colleagues that had used different alternative capital, especially those that used more uh, debt-related instruments, that they ended up having a greater degree of wealth creation. And when you looked at the cap table mix, that those that had more ownership had more influence on being able to bring life to their vision. I did some research around different uh, capital models, came across the more royalty-based type of funding, and also recognized the type of businesses that were launched by diverse founders were not the next Facebook companies. These businesses were much more asset-like businesses, so they weren't unicorn businesses. I came up with the term, they're more zebra-led businesses, and such that they generally were not delivering the grand slams that the unicorn businesses uh, were generating, but with the right capital, they could deliver, using the baseball analogy, uh, singles or doubles. And it also provided a significant amount of wealth for the founders, as well as you know the impact that they have on job creation and just the representative representation that they have of what's possible. Presumably it's the case that some of these businesses that you're trying to back, some of these founders, don't even know that this sort of solution is out there. This is a generational problem. There has not been financial resources in their communities, you know, period. There has been a huge lack of trust by diverse founders with financial services and capital providers because uh, the absence of resources, the lack of respect for their journeys and their underserved communities, just as you were talking about some of the work that you all do in um, greater market building, that's some of what we have to do as well. Um, because of first and foremost, building that trust and understanding that not all financial products are the same and not all uh folks are out to, that that there are people that have your best interest and recognize that by, um, what is it, the tide lifts all boats, by investing in your business and helping you grow, that you also help your community and you help others see what's possible. So how do we do this on a much bigger scale, both in the US and elsewhere? What are the key levers that we can pull? The, the, the first is the education awareness of having people understand that there is uh, a network of people and resources and capital and a pathway to grow, building awareness about you can do good and do well and have a way of providing a predictable income stream by investing in diverse founders. That's one. Uh, the other is providing timely, transparent data around the positive impact of uh, providing investment to grow um, these businesses and how it helps the overall ecosystem, not just um, 
diverse founders. But if you look at the significant wealth effect that has occurred because of getting access to capital, the impact of innovation um, and creating wealth and people taking risks, basically leveraging that innovation and market problems have been tremendous. Um, but, you know, you can have really great ideas, but if you don't have the resources to do that, you won't, you, you know, you're not able to uh, take advantage of it and go all the way back, IBM and the wealth that was created because of the innovation of IBM. And then you could go to the next generation, Microsoft, the wealth effect that's been created because of, of Microsoft. There's so many articles around the network effect of wealth creation. People many times think that economic uh, uh, development, economic equality, economic equity advancement is either just a philanthropic issue or they think it's just for a certain subset of people. Unfortunately, so many times it's a, you know, we're going to, we're going to view, have this point of view for one or two years, and then it's going to go back to business usual because we have this perception that it's not an economic win. It's just a philanthropic thing to do. But when you look at other advancements, I mean, think about, you know, the internet, which, you know, was my ticket to help me get into entrepreneurship. It was a collaborative effort of innovation, policies, practices, and, you know, you know, benefits associated with that, that help spur this level of adoption. I mean, you could go through and look at, you know, the same types of practices of being able to increase the number of those businesses that are less than $5 million to go to the other side with the, you know, resources and know-how and, uh, and policies and practices so that they can grow. And with that growth, you know, we all win. We all win. And just lastly, how optimistic are you about the direction of travel? How hopeful are you that we can make some real progress in this area over the next five to 10 years? When I started Founders First uh, in 2015, yeah. I had a big audacious vision of being able to fund thousands of companies over a uh, thousand company over 10 years. And I definitely think that that's possible. There has to be a predictable way of um, these companies being able to grow and create jobs. When the minority supplier uh, uh, development agency was started 50 years ago, black and brown and, uh, led companies were less than 10% of the overall business economy. They're much more of a significant number. And that number is growing every day. 30, 40%. That's a pretty substantial segment of the marketplace and having and and the diversity of our of our community overall and so with being able to provide a way for these companies to grow that has a substantial impact in growing our economies and everybody knows there's been a slowing of our overall economic growth in the last decade so this is a really big growth opportunity. The whole idea of an inclusive economy is not just good for these diverse founders. It's good for everybody. You've been listening to Bridges 2030 Visions with me, James Taylor. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, why not like, subscribe, share, download extra episodes, or even leave us a nice five-star review somewhere. Thanks for joining us. 